Okay, we're going to begin uh, our story at where the, um, the Bible begins its story. What I'll try to do for those of you that are kind of keeping outlines, I actually have an outline of this. If somebody wants it, you can email me afterwards. Um, but we're going to begin at the, the account of creation. Um, the majestic account of creation is where uh, the Bible opens. Um, uh, it begins with creation of the universe, the earth, and all living things. But clearly the weight of the story uh, rests on the creation of man, the crown of God's creation. Again, not meant to be a scientific uh, sort of uh, explanation of how earth and mankind came to be formed, but rather to show people uh, that the true God was not like the other gods. Think about this. The Israelites are leaving uh, 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 Egypt where there were a plethora of gods. Would you say there was a plethora of gods? There was a plethora of gods uh, in Egypt at that time. But Moses was trying to say one God, one God over all things. That's the point of that narrative. Creation is the story of God's creation of the kingdom of God. He was looking for a theater, a place to display his glory. The Westminster Confession says, what is the chief end of man? Why is man here? What's his ultimate purpose in life? And what's the answer of the, of the catechism? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, John Piper, in, in following after uh, Jonathan Edwards, said, well, then what is the chief end of God? Why is God here? You know, the answer is, same thing, to glorify himself. And so creation is his theater uh, of creation. Secondly, in that he makes man in his own image. Uh, being created in the image of God means that man has dominion. In other words, he's been, giving a he's been given a charge over something. He's there to take care of something, uh, namely this creation God has given him. And what God did was, is he did what any beginning relationship does. He had a DTR. <laughs> A DTR is where you sit down and you let somebody know what the nature of this relationship is. Now look, this is not a dating seminar, although we could do that sometime. Um, um, but the, the, one of the things that sort of is the most curious to me about the modern dating ritual is how little we spend talking about what is this between you and me if we say we're dating. Dating is a real big word, man. You drop that sucker and like things start changing like awfully fast. Everybody gets mad. You know, everybody gets sexual, it gets all kinds of stuff starts happening when you drop that word there. Um, but what's funny about that is every other relationship that you have, the rules for the relationship are kind of intuitive, are they not? Um, if my daughters come running in here, there is nothing unusual about them trotting up in front of you, throwing their arms around my neck and giving me a great big kiss. I've got the sweetest, most affectionate daughters. I love them for that. None of you would think strange about that at all. But if Jason came trotting up here, threw his arm around my neck and gave me a big old kiss, you might be kind of like, hmm, hmm. What? A little weird. Why? Because it's not behavior that's appropriate for the nature of the relationship. Follow me there? Every, every relationship you have has a definition. Where the problems start is when you begin to behave in such a way that is inconsistent with the relationship. Um, to take a very serious turn here for a second, what does, it, what does it feel like to grow up in an abusive home? Some of you know what that's like. To grow up in a home where your parents crossed over boundaries. Some of those boundaries were physical boundaries. Some of them were sexual boundaries. Some of them were verbal boundaries where you just don't say that to someone. 
Why does that hurt and create the life quake that it does? Because they violated the definition of the relationship. Now, the weird thing about though dating is, is we rarely get a clear grasp over what this is. What is this? Well, we're dating. <gasps> we're dating. And you never know what the rules are until you break them. And then the other person lets you know. Again, I digress. Now, here's my question. Why do we do that? <laughs> Why is that so instinctive to us to wonder about what's going on? Why is it that we, we, all these relationships just fall out where we just long to define and understand and someone define this relationship for us? Well, you want to know why? Because we are created in the image of a God who defines the relationship with his people. You want to know why? Because even he, in the relationship of his own three persons in the Trinity, has defined those relationships. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit don't do the same things. What have they done? They've defined the relationship. God the Father, the eternally begetting one, the Son, the eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceedeth from the Father and the Son, says the old Westminster Confession. What does that mean? There's definition to these relationships. And when God creates in his image, he creates a man uh, in his image. And that, and that definition of that relationship is called a covenant. This covenant. However, though, mankind decides that he does not want to live in the relationship that God has established for him, which is very simply, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so they break away from him. They sort of break the contract. They fall from perfection. In the fall. And the fall was absolutely the most drastic thing that happened in human history. It was not without the promises of God, though, for, perfect, for salvation from it. In Genesis 3.15, you get the very first example of what God is going to do uh, uh, in the future with mankind. He's not going to let them stay in rebellion. From that point, from Genesis 3.15 all the way through to chapter 12, the spread of sin dominates the Bible story. The flood is God's judgment on the earth to show his hatred of sin. Um, it's an object lesson of God's judgment and how he is going to sort of purge the world of the evil that's there. The Tower of Babel also is an example of divine judgment on human pride. Okay? Now look, as you're reading Genesis 1 through 11 before we move on to Abraham, beware of asking foolish questions that the Bible doesn't answer. For instance, well, when Cain... One of the sons of Adam and Eve is banished from the Garden of Eden, or banished from, not the Garden of Eden, banished from the family. Um, it says in the rest of the narrative that he goes off and he marries people from another land. And everybody's like, who did Cain marry? Ta-da! See, the Bible contradicts itself. And I will say this. Don't, <clears throat> like, don't treat the last 2,000 years of church scholarship, as if someone is sitting in an office somewhere being like, <gasps> we missed that part. We don't know who Cain married for Pete's sake. Why didn't we think of it? So, did you hear what they found out in this freshman orientation class at Old Miss? What are we going to do? Um, open up the possibility that people might have actually read that before, and they're assuming that Adam and Eve were actually bearing children on a regular basis for long times of life. 
And within 10 years of them having those children, they began to have children. In other words, the multiplication of the race actually probably happened. And so it's likely that Cain ended up either marrying a sister, a cousin, a distant cousin, or something to that effect as God was helping them uh, multiply through during that period. In other words, just because it doesn't mention all of the other siblings and children and cousins and whatever that were going on doesn't mean that they weren't there, especially if it's true, as the Bible reports in Old Testament history, that their lives were as long as they were. Does that make sense? So that's where we are on that one, uh, on the first one, the creation. Secondly, God's promise to Abraham. Now we are to Genesis chapter uh, uh, 12. A man called Abram, his name first of all was Abram, by the way, do you know that? Was called out a place called Ur of the Chaldees, uh, which is down here in sort of the upper northwestern Persian Gulf area, into the land of Haran. Uh, This occurred, some historians say, around 2000 B.C. Now when we get to the life of Abraham, we have some of the first specific rooting in uh, human history. It was a new beginning of God's uh, dealings with his people. What's interesting is God does not start to deal with Abraham because he's like the coolest guy in Ur. Nor is it because he's the most holy guy in Ur. He's not. Actually, quite the opposite. God's very explicit when he talks to Abraham later. He's like, I didn't pick you because you were awesome. As a matter of fact, I picked you because it was some, I just wanted to show my glory in you. Hold that thought, because that comes up over and over and over again. Only by God's mercy does he do that. But what he does is he pulls Abram away, and he's like, Abram, I'm going to promise you something. I'm going to make a promise to you, and it's going to be dominated by three things. I'm going to promise you a land. I'm going to give you a sense of place, Abram, a place where you belong. You know, the, the music from West Side Story should be drifting through your head at this time. You remember where, you know, Maria is singing, you know, somewhere, somewhere there's a place for us. Have you ever sent, felt that sense of placelessness? Some of you don't realize that this is what happened your freshman year. Because your parents moved you from the, the, the comfortable confines of your bedroom at a home that you were used to into the palace of luxury that is the cinder block cell of Martin and Stockard. You know? And for some reason, you got depressed after a couple of months. Why? Because you need a place. And who would have thought that that was not conducive to human flourishing, to be in (laughs) Stockard and Martin with it sort of reeking of certain smells. But God said, I'm going to give you a land. You want to know why? Because you need a place. Number two, I'm going to give you a lineage. I'm going to give you a sense of connection to people. Your descendants, Abraham, are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. You're not going to believe how they're... And then the last promise, and this one is a big one, is that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. I want you, Abraham, to be who you are for them. <laughs> the point of doing this is for them. That's the covenant God makes with Abraham. Look, this is a very big deal because the rest of the Bible is the unfolding of those promises to give you a land, a lineage, and, the, and a blessing to the nations, right? But you can sum it all up with God's little phrase that gets repeated over and over and over again. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will be a connection to you. In other words, what I want to do is I want to be with you. <laughs> I want us to be together. I've always said that one of the best things about being the campus minister at Ole Miss is that we have a very intuitive grasp over how cool it is just to hang out. You know, in other universities, like they study all the time. Um, whatever. Um, 
At Ole Miss, that's not our deal. Our deal is like, we're going to our Sundays to hang out. And then the best stuff in the world. Just hanging out with people, just being with friends. We nurture friendships here in a way. Why? Because it rings true with something that we want. We long for that communion with one another because you want to know why? They're memory traces. They're memory traces of a longing to be connected with God in that exact same way. And suddenly from Abraham you get these first promises. The whole of the Old and New Testament is a subtle outworking of these promises to Abraham. The nation of Israel was the seed. Canaan was the promised land. And now we're only now experiencing the blessing of God to the whole earth. Um, We, you and I, are a part of the promise that was made to Abram along this journey. Isn't that amazing? You're sitting here today because of that promise that God made there, presumably. That promise. Um, Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us, wanting to be near us, and these promises are still waiting for their final fulfillment. In other words, they have been inaugurated, but they've not been consummated. Is that right? The blessing has come in Jesus. We're now waiting for them to be fulfilled at the end of time. More on that in just a minute. So God keeps renewing his covenant with Abraham. You want to know why? Because you've got to be reminded. It's very easy. You know, some, there'll be some men that'll be like, I mean, I don't know. I told my wife I loved her when we got married. Well, you know, congratulations. But you might need to tell it again, like on a regular basis. Why? Because we worry about whether this relationship is still solid like it used to be. And so God goes to Abraham throughout his life, reminding him of this covenant. He does the same thing with Abraham's son, got him Isaac, um, uh, while they sort of resided in the land of Canaan as nomads. By the time they had made it to this area, this area uh, is known uh, as Canaan. Uh, They had sort of settled in that area. I think I can sort of bring that up. Yeah, here we go. Uh, This is sort of the idea of where Abraham uh, sort of dwelt and moved uh, during his time while he was alive. Um, And they were nomads. They picked up and moved around. Isaac had two sons by the name of Esau and Jacob. Um, The younger, Jacob, was the second son, actually deceived his brother out of his birthright. It was a big deal in those days to be the oldest, the firstborn, because you kind of got all of the rights of the family. But Jacob was like, you know, he was pretty tricky. Uh, and through some trickeration, uh, ended up sort of getting the blessing from his father instead of his older brother, which led to a lot of drama uh, throughout the book of um, Genesis. But what happened then is that the line of promise, instead of going through Esau, shifted to Jacob. Um, well, Jacob had a lot of struggles with God uh, uh, and uh, you know, wrestled a lot, even uh, actually with an angel of God, sort of a pre-incarnate version of Jesus. They had a wrestling match in the book of Genesis. You ought to read it. Um, and because he wrestled with God, God said, you know what? I'm not going to call you Jacob anymore. I'm going to call you wrestles with God. Well, in Hebrew, the name wrestles with God comes out as Ish-ra-el. Ish-ra-el, wrestles with God, or what we know as Israel. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel, okay? And Israel ends up being the one who has all these struggles. But he has 12 sons. Uh, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, so are you. (laughs) Let's just praise the Lord. Um, But what happens is, is the 12 children of Israel become the 12 tribes of Israel, and from that creates this great nation. Um, Well, the second youngest, there's 12 of them, number 11 of this thing, was a guy by the name of Joseph. Um, Joseph was Israel's favorite. He was his father's favorite. And Jacob, uh, Israel, actually spoiled him. And that's never good. 
uh, because it created conflict among the rest of the children. Some of you know exactly what that's like. You've lived in homes where either you're the favorite or you have uh, siblings who are the favorite, and home can be bad during that. Uh, well, because of their jealousy, they sell uh, Joseph into slavery, and Joseph is taken down into Egypt uh, uh, and is and enslaved. But God is actually with him there. And while he's there, he blesses him so much through a series of bizarre providential circumstances, Joseph ends up becoming like second in charge of the entire kingdom. Incredible, incredible story about the way that happens. Well, eventually he ends up predicting through God's help that there's going to be this huge famine in the land where nobody's going to have any food for years and years. Uh, And so... Uh, what happens is, is uh, the, the, the brothers who are still living go to Egypt to buy grain. And they suddenly find out that it's not grain. that They're, they're not buying grain from Egypt. They're buying it from their long-lost brother who they thought was dead uh, and then sold into slavery. And there's this incredible sort of revealing uh, of uh, the true identity at the very end of the book of Genesis between Joseph and his brothers who sold him into slavery like years before. It's awesome. You need to read that. Well, the book of Genesis ends with uh, their father passing away. Finally, Israel dies. uh, And, of course, the brothers are kind of like, oh, Joseph's going to kill us now. And Joseph ends the whole book of Genesis saying, you know what? Look, (laughs) you intended evil for me, but God intended those same actions for good. And um, you know what? He's going to work all this out. I'm here to save people. I'm not, I'm not against you here. And so finally Joseph dies uh, very old along with his brothers. And the children of Israel go take up a land uh, right next to uh, Egypt uh, known as Goshen. Goshen was this area just to the east of Egypt uh, here. And uh, they begin to multiply. Because of the principles that were established by God and Abraham, they sort of developed a people group that were a healthier uh, society than what they had in pagan Egypt. And uh, um, uh, there they sat for 430 years. 430 years. The children of Israel just multiplying over here, taking over the land of Egypt. Okay? And that's where the book of Genesis ends. Now, I know what you're saying. You're being like, so we just finished the first book of Genesis? Bear with me. It all starts to go real fast from here on out. So buckle up and let's go riding through this and we'll take a break here in about 15 minutes. Um, Okay, so the book of Exodus then opens because what happened? Eventually there was a king in Egypt, uh, and they don't call them kings in Egypt, they call them pharaohs, who actually didn't remember who Joseph was and didn't remember how awesome he was to the people of Israel back in the days gone by. And what happened was he was like, "Uh, there's a whole lot of people kind of multiplying over here and if we let them go for long enough, um, they're going to come and take us over. So we need to be proactive here and enslave them early on. You know, it makes sense. You know, if you're going to do it, I'm just go ahead and enslave them. So they do. And they put them to work building some of the great sort of uh, uh, artifacts of Egypt. They're starting to build uh, some of the early uh, 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 cities that, uh, that went on early on. But God actually is still working. He's not forgotten his people. Um, and what he does is he finds sort of a... Um, uh, uh, and a Hebrew-born but Egyptian-raised prophet by the name of Moses. Um, well, Moses has a run-in with the law in his uh, early, uh, in his late teens, uh, and ends up being fleeing out into the desert uh, around this particular area, uh, uh, um, on, away from the law. Well, there he meets God, and God actually shows up to in a very vivid way through a burning bush, <laughs> and He reveals to him His name, His friendly family name. You know, he kind of have friendly family names. My oldest daughter is Anna Grace. She's Anna Grace Newsom. But in my house, to me, to her daddy, she's Gracie. 
She'll always be Gracie, right? God gave people a family name for himself, and that name was, I will be who I will be, or in the Hebrew, Yahweh. Yahweh ends up being the familiar name. You'll see it in your Old Testament written as Lord, L-O-R-D, but the O and the R-D are like capital but small capitals. You ever read that before? That's when it's using the word Yahweh. David talks about Yahweh all the time. You can see it in the Psalms in that particular respect. But God reveals to him his name and says, Look, I want you to lead my people out of slavery. I want, to take, I want you to take them out of Egypt and take them back to the place where they belong that I have prepared for them. So Moses returns and demands that Ramses II release the children of Israel. Uh, and of course he refuses. Ramses actually puts that off and finally has to endure the ten plagues before he releases them. Well, after miraculously crossing uh, the Red Sea uh, in sort of this particular area, uh, once they sort of cross over the Red Sea, uh, miraculously, God drowns the entirety of Pharaoh's army. Um, but instead of leading them immediately up into uh, 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 the Canaan promised land, he tells them to turn southward. They're being led by God with a cloud during the day and a big ball of fire at night, which itself is kind of cool. Um, they turn southward to a place called Sinai. The whole region's known as Sinai. But somewhere in this particular area, they come to the great and holy mountain. We don't know exactly which mountain it is. There's a couple places where they've got monasteries and places you can still go and visit that speculate where, the, where God showed up. But while they're all there, the children of Israel gather around this big mountain. Now look, it hadn't been an easy trip. Don't get me wrong. This little journey down here was not that much fun. A lot of complaining. A lot of like, I think we were better off in Egypt. And God is like, mm, I'm going to talk about it right now. Bear with me. We'll just wait till we get to Sinai. A lot of complaining. Now look, don't be too upset by that. These people have been enslaved for 430 years. Okay? That like messes with your psychology. All right? Go talk to your African-American brothers and sisters and say, what did it do to your grandparents' generation to live in a society where you couldn't drink out of the same, fire, uh, the same water fountain as a white guy? Like, what was that like? And they'll tell you a little bit about how psychologically that'll mess you up. And so what you deal with is a people that are, they're just messed up, right? And God is having to patiently walk them through, and so is Moses, but it's not easy. So he gathers them around this whole mountain. The mountain starts to burn, and there's lightning and thunder and whatnot. And God once again talks about his covenant. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> he gets them out and says, we're going to have a DTR. Let's talk about it again. Let's renew. Number one, I'm going to tell you exactly the same rules of the covenant that Abraham had. The second thing he gives them is he gives them a moral law. Is he's like, look, this is what's going to guide you. I'm going to give everything. It's called, and I'm going to put it in ten simple rules, easy to memorize rules, and then I'm going to expound off those as we go along. These things covered not only their everyday lives as, mo- as moral people, but also the way in which they would run as a country. The little ceremony, the civil laws that they did to help judge how they would do that. And then finally, they, they had a huge discussion about how to deal with times in which they had broken the law right? And how they would do with their breaches of the law. And what God told them to build is this big tent. (laughs) And so God said, look, I want you to make a place where I can come and dwell with you. But I'm going to tell you about various pieces of furniture, every little placement of which is going to say something about how I deal with you. This sort of a, this sort of a tent of meeting, or in the, the Septuagint's translation of the Hebrew word, a tabernacle, Okay, that's where the word comes from, a tent of meeting, had two rooms. The front room was the holy place. It had a couple pieces of important furniture inside it. In the back, there was a place called the Holy of Holies, and it was a perfect cube, 
It was as long and tall and wide as it was. Everything was even back there. And on the inside of there, there was a very important piece of furniture called the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And on, inside of that was placed the Ten Commandments, the lid of which was God's seating place was a place. There was nothing there. There was no image of God, rather just a couple of angels bowing in holy reverence on top of this lid. But that was the seat, of, that was the mercy seat uh, uh, in that particular place. Well, when they set this whole thing up uh, 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 in, in the book of Exodus, God actually shows up again in a giant ball of fire that rests right on the top of this tabernacle here while he reveals himself to his people. Um, So the rest of Exodus and all of the book of Leviticus deal with doing sacrifices properly. Um, They talk about living a life in a fallen world. And a lot of times you get these instructions for being unclean and clean. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about Leviticus because in my opinion, like the book of Leviticus is that book that is a lot of people's excuses for not believing any of the Bible. (laughs) Have you read that? Like, it's really weird. Like, apparently, like, you know, first of all, it says that homosexual sex is wrong, which that can't be right, which we believe today. Um, uh, It says that, like, people are unclean, you know, after they have sex. Like, a woman's unclean when she has a period. Like, I don't know what in the world this is talking about. It's the weirdest thing I've ever read. People are unclean when they have a scab or something. Somebody's supposed to come look at it. Like, I'm telling you, Leviticus will freak you out if you read it. And people look at it and go, if that's in the Bible, I can't trust any of it. Okay? But look, I'm going to give you one small little thing. That when the Bible talks about these rules for being clean and unclean, it is not saying sinful or unsinful. Very, very important point when you're looking at Leviticus. It's not about being sinful or unsinful. What it means is about being acceptable or outside of normal convention. In other words, they were instructive about how life went in a fallen world where things were not as they were to be. Let me give you a small example. None of you this morning, you might have slept in what you're wearing right now. I don't want to know that personally. But none of you came this morning in your pajamas. Why? Because there's a social convention that when you kind of go out among people, I don't wear the same thing that I wear when I'm sleeping in a bed. Right? It's just because the way it is. I just don't do that. Now, (laughs) however you sleep is your own business. I don't care to hear any testimonies or anything. But there was something that is socially acceptable That's the kind of laws that you see in Leviticus. God is saying, here's what it means to be acceptable or unacceptable, because in that you'll see some lessons about what it means to live in a fallen world. Now, applying those can often be a challenge, uh, but in the end it's got some uh, interesting applications. Especially significant in the book of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement, when the chief priest would enter the holiest of holies back here and make uh, a sacrifice for all of the people. And all of these functions are symbols of the work of Christ. Everything in here uh, is a symbol of the work of Christ that people walk you through. You walk through the front door, the very first thing you see is that altar, meaning you don't get to get to the presence of God until there's been atonement for sin. Isn't that huge? And then there's a washing where you washed in the laver before you actually got to go into holy places. So the tabernacle was a very big deal. So now the children of Israel are ready, right? By the time you get to Numbers, they are ready to march into Canaan and take back the land. But the problem is in the book of Numbers is that their sin gets in the way. They've got a pillar of cloud that's leading them, but they still complain. They complain about a shortage of food. They complain about um, uh, the people that are in the land already. I mean, they're going to go occupy land that's already there. So they send spies in there to look and see what it looks like. And they're all like, we're dead. We're dead. Have you ever watched The Incredibles? 
I love The Incredibles. You remember when the, when the plane blows up with uh, Dash and um, what's the girl's name? Violet. 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 Thank you. Hugh. Hugh. Um, when they fall in there and Dash is just in the water and goes, we're dead. We're dead. We survived, but we're dead. That's what the spies said when they came back into the people going, we're not going to make this, not going to happen. Well, God is so angry at their faithlessness. I mean, this is the God who like appeared to them on the mountain and he like part of the Red Sea and they walked on dry land. He's going, do you think these people are too big for me? And so he says, look, you know what? You're not, you're not going in. None of you are going in. As a matter of fact, you're going to wander through for 40 years until you die out. But there were two uh, spies that actually uh, w- w- told him, no, we can do this. Uh, Joshua and Caleb, they're the ones that begin to hang on. But in the midst of it, uh, they all fall for doubting him, right? And so therefore they wander in the wilderness uh, for 40 years. And as they wander, they find themselves in Moab on the shores of the Jordan. They find themselves right here in this lower p- area in what is known as Moab, ready to move in and sort of take the land that God had given them. Um, and Moses stands up and addresses them for the last time in one big, long sermon. And you know what the sermon is about? It's about the Ten Commandments. And we wrote that sermon down, and it's called the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth of the book of the, of the, the Pentateuch, and it's outlined by the Ten Commandments. And then Moses actually, because he struck a rock when he was told to speak to the rock, does not get to go into the promised land. Now, when you read that when you're kind of going, uh, I'm not sure I want to follow this God, because that's a little harsh. That's a lot harsh. Well, um, I don't know, for two reasons. Number one, um, Moses had already been told to strike a rock earlier on in another miracle God did of creating water coming out of a rock. Later on, he was supposed to speak to a rock because that rock is only supposed to be struck once. Jesus doesn't die over and over again. That rock was a symbol of what Jesus was going to be. And when Moses comes up and strikes the rock again, he is in danger of giving the people of Israel a wrong gospel. There is no striking. Now there's just speaking. So in doing so, God was judging him for that. Now, but you can still say like, uh, all right, but he doesn't get to go to the promised land for Pete's sake. Moses dies on the top of Mount Nebo, which is right around here, looking over into the promised land. Just like, huh, cool. And then he dies. And God buries him in a place where we don't know where it is. And you end in the book of Deuteronomy, you're going, I don't know if I can deal with that. Hey, hey, that's not the last time we hear from Moses. A couple thousand years later, Moses shows up on another mountain with another person named Jesus who actually starts to glow in front of him, okay? And Peter, James, and John are standing around too. Why? Because the promised land was not the point of the children of Israel. This land was not the point. Seeing Jesus was the point. Yes, he died as a professional failure. And you know what? You might too. You might get to the end of your life not ever having seen what you really thought God was going to do through you and do these great things. But you know what? That's okay. Because that's not, that's not the point. Your success is not the point. Seeing the face of Jesus was the point. And that's what Moses got to see in that end. Isn't that cool? Um, all right. So basically, Israel is ready to move in. After Deuteronomy, we have the book of Joshua because God or Moses appoints Joshua to be a leader. And so Moses... Uh, jo- uh, Joshua, as he crosses the Jordan, you know what he does? He parts the sea again, and they walk across on dry land. Sound familiar? Yeah, of course it did. Showing that Joshua's got the same authority of God as Moses did. 
And as soon as they march in, they conquer Jericho first in an amazing story of God's uh, salvation. They are defeated at a place called Ai because of the disobedience of a guy named Achan. Uh, but later on, they, they became victorious. They turn southward and begin to sort of wrestle with the kings of an area uh, of the country called Philistia. Remember that name? Because they don't fully wipe those people out. And because they didn't fully wipe those people out, they bothered them for the next, for hundreds and hundreds of years afterwards. The Philistines, you'll hear them called uh, as they come through these particular books. But the rest of the book of Joshua contains the stories of the exploits of Joshua conquering the land until he finally dies. But before he does so, he delivers this very stirring speech about the people, about following God's covenant. Remember the covenant. Think about the DTR. Rest on that. That is the deal. But, of course, the children of Israel do not obey God to totally exterminate the Canaanites from the land. By the way, sometimes when you read, we're now into the book of uh, Joshua and Judges, and you hear God going and saying, I want you to go in, I want you to kill every man, woman, and child. I want you to destroy the whole thing. And you're going, uh, <clears throat> that doesn't seem very godlike. I thought we were going to be gentle and kind and whatnot. Okay, just for a second, remember that these Canaanite religions were horribly pagan. Horribly plaguing. Like child sacrifices, fertility gods. There were all kinds of atrocities that were committed by these Canaanite religious cults. When God came in to sort of wipe them out, it was to preserve the earth from their wicked influence. Now, I know that seems still distasteful to you because you're going, that still doesn't seem gentle and nice and merciful. Um, how do you feel about ISIS? I find it fascinating that ISIS is now like tearing through everything. And even left-wing, anti-capital punishment people are standing up being like, how can we go over there and wipe these people out? Because they're not listening to anything. They're killing innocent people. They're destroying all kinds of religious artifacts from whatever. How can we wipe them out? I'm just saying that there's a, uh, there's a level that even we get to where we're like, we got to go deal with this problem. That's what God was saying about what was going on in Canaan. Throw that in there because people get off-put by the Bible when it says stuff like that. So the Israelites begin to get influenced by their negative practice, by their practices. They come in here, and because they don't wipe them out, they start to take on these other godlike practices. Not good. The book of Judges has a continual cycling of, of, of backsliding, oppression, and then deliverance by these figures of Judges for nearly 200 years. So God comes in and brings military leaders oftentimes that will rescue them physically. Sometimes the judges were spiritual leaders who taught them devotion to Yahweh. Other times they were just judges who were trying to create justice in the midst of an oppressive society. But despite all those efforts of even repenting sometimes, everybody ends up doing this phrase over and over again in the book of Judges. Remember what it is? Everybody does what is right in their own eyes. The children of Israel bouncing around here having a very difficult time finally the ultimate happens like the ultimate horrible thing happens the philistines capture the very ark of the covenant you have got to be kidding me of all the things to lose what happens and finally in the midst of that god raises up the last and the greatest of the judges a man by the name of samuel samuel was raised in the temple by an evil priest whose name was eli but he was faithful to the lord and he was known all over as a faithful voice of god to the people However, when Samuel got old, his sons were corrupt, and the people began to cry out for a king. Uh, and so God told Samuel, don't worry, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me when they go after uh, a king. And so 2 Samuel begins with God actually giving uh, uh, the children of Israel a king. 
And that leads us to, I think, a nice stopping place before we start to watch what Israel looked like as a, um, uh, as a kingship. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions, though, before we take another break and stretch like Meredith is? Got you stretching. I know it's coming at you super fast right now. Don't worry about getting the little details. Let it wash over you uh, as we go through it. Uh, so the big picture. You want to walk away with the big picture from this. Yeah, Pew. I've heard from, I can't even remember, it's been a while, but that the archaeological site of Jericho uh, is in line with what the Bible says about it and, and that the walls fell outwards. If it had been time, they would have fallen down. Mm. If it had been battle, it would have fallen in. Mm. Have you heard that? or is there? Is I, I have not, but, but I'll say this about archaeological mm. studies as a, as, a general, as a general rule. Um, one of the things that, all, that, that is the most shocking about the text that we have, um, you know, the Bible is covering history that's you know, thousands of years old. There's just not another document like that that we have in antiquity that's as well-preserved as that. Nothing comes close. I, I used to have a Time Magazine article that had come out in the early 90s when I was in, uh, in grad school um, that was touting the fact that they had discovered the earliest copy of Plato's Republic in some, like, you know, monastery in Western Europe, okay? And they dated that copy of Plato's Republic to like 1,000 A.D., all right? So 1,000 years after Christ, you know, whatever period that was, medieval period for us. And, and scholars were shocked, like jaws dropped to the ground. <gasps> that, is, that is 1,200 years away from when we think that Plato lived. Does that make sense? And they were like, holy cow, this is the greatest discovery ever. <laughs> well, we have like ancient papyri fragments that quote large chunks of the New and Old Testament that date from within 150 to 250 years after the events happened. Like that is jaw-droppingly amazing. Uh, one of the other examples that this Time Magazine article was saying was is that for every era there are more archaeological objections thrown at the Bible, but for some reason you give it a little more time to discover more things, and the Bible just ends up smelling like a rose. One of the great examples was back in the 40s and 50s, a lot of scholars went liberal because they're like, we have no example in human history of the Hittites. Who are the Hittites? Ain't nobody ever heard of the Hittites. Bible keeps talking about the Hittites. Hittites don't exist. Well, guess what happened in the late 50s, early 60s when archaeological digs got more sophisticated? Lo and behold, we find the daggum Hittites, right? Got extant sort of uh, documents to from from. This is what I'm saying is, no, archaeologically we can't line up everything, but it's amazing how often... Shocking how often archaeological discoveries do line up very perfectly with biblical narrative. Josh McDowell, in his two-volume work, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, sums up the Bible sort of uh, historical data and archaeological data by saying this, there is no other book of antiquity that we have in our possession that comes anywhere close to the amount of evidence we have for the veracity and truthfulness of the Bible. It stands alone among historical documents of its kind in terms of its integrity. Now, does that mean that we know every single thing? Does that mean that we have a museum where we have the papyri that Paul wrote on, you know, or that he had his scribe? No, we don't have that. And some people are kind of like, why don't we have that? I wish God would have done that. You know, wouldn't that have been cool? Like if some, you know, 
What, what if it was like the way Joseph Smith did it with the Mormons? Joseph Smith, you know, goes behind a curtain and an angel appears to him and gives him the, the Pearl, of Great Pro, Pearl of Price and the Book of Mormon. Um, that would have been so much better, right? Just would have come down, oh, you know, a little, you know, light would have come down, music all around it. Why don't we have that, right? Well, I think one of the answers is because we'd be sitting around worshiping it right now. Have you gone to go see the, 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 the book? Yes, I've been to the book. I went to go see the book. I bowed down to it, kissed it twice. Um, you know, I received a great blessing from it. God knows that, you, that the human heart is an idle factory. And I think one of the reasons why he gave us a 99.999% pure text of Scripture is because if it was 100%, we'd all walk around and, and, and idolize the book instead of what the book was about. Does that make sense? Speculative. That wasn't your question at all. I have no idea about Jericho. <laughs> it's the sign of a great speaker is to make a good answer out of a question that you didn't ask. <laughs> I, yeah, that's exactly right. All right, let's take a break. Uh, let's do another 10-minute break. We'll be back at uh, 11.05. Does that work?